I'm Matt Barbet. This is the Freudcast. And today I'm with the man who gave his name to the Freudcast. He gave his name to Freud. It is our founder, chairman, chief creative officer, Matthew Freud. Matthew, thanks for agreeing to do this. It's a pleasure. I was thinking about this because this is the week that obviously started with Holocaust Memorial Day. And it was your great grandfather, Sigmund, who in fleeing the Nazis in Austria in the late 30s, came to London and brought his famous name here as well. That was the start of it, really. Yes, uh, it's sort of why we're in North London. Um, yeah. He. Um, he fled in a, a quite a dignified way. He was um, one of his patients was Napoleon's great granddaughter, I think. Yeah. And she lent on the Allied forces to send in a, a sort of team to, to get him out. So he 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 was sort of escorted out of Vienna and, and was was unusually given a a form that allowed him to take his household staff and his sort of family and he famously and controversially didn't bring his four sisters who the next day were taken to um, uh, Auschwitz but he came I think to Ellsworthy Road which is just on the other side of Primrose Hill and lived there for I think only a few months and then moved to Maresfield Gardens where the Sigmund Freud Museum is but I grew up in this neck of the woods. When I moved back here from Notting Hill about eight, nine years ago and sort of saw ghosts of my eight, nine, ten-year-old self at sort of outside the Odeon at Swiss Cottage and going up the parade. Uh, so it's very much home. Because I should explain for people listening, we are in Primrose Hill where you live now. We've got your dog Vincent and we're going to walk into the West End and we're going to... I don't want to say something as hackneyed as walk, stroll down memory lane, but we're going to look back a little bit at the last 35 years since, uh, since Freud's, the agency, was founded. But I guess the other person in your, your wider family perhaps informed that move into public relations when you were in your 20s was Edward Bernays, who was uh, a nephew of Sigmund and also the father of modern PR. I didn't know about him. Uh, there was this sort of odd thing in my family that you weren't, weren't really supposed to do something that someone else had done. Right. So, so you couldn't be an artist. You like could be an artist, you couldn't be a broadcaster, you couldn't be a chef, you couldn't be a fashion designer. You know, all that. Yeah. So so I, I, I stumbled into PR about 18. I was quite good at it. I thought, well, all right, this will do. You know, no one's, no one's bagged this yet. What was and the first job? T-boy in the RCA Records press office which I was underqualified for because I didn't know how to make tea. <laughs> I um, still don't really. They gave me a couple of, of acts that no one else wanted to represent to work on. There was one group who, who had been with us here Records for a while and they had a, put a big album out um, as the tourists, which didn't do anything. And then they, the second album, album came out and then the first single didn't do anything and and they were quite high maintenance and so no one else really wanted to do them and so they gave it to the t-boy and the second single was sweet dreams are made of this okay and it was here was eurythmics ah. and so so i you know i had i had i had quite a good run for a couple of years and then i got this press cutting from the new york times about edward bernays who i think had just turned 100 right and turns out he's my great uncle and invented public relations and it's like oh fuck 
anything. It wasn't a rule. It was just guidance. I think so. But did you get in touch with him? Did you I ever did, speak actually, to him? Yeah, yeah, I did. I don't remember much about it. I mean, I, I, I think we had a phone call and he was, you know, old and chatty. Yeah. But um, but then the, the Adam Curtis documentary, Century of the Self. Vincent, come on. Come on. Yeah, I sort of, I learnt about as much from from that Century of the Self documentary as, as, as anything else. And, and it, in ways it's informed, I guess, my approach to what I do. Uh, as much in contrast with Bernays as, as in concert. Yeah, yeah. Was the, was the family name in any way a sort of a, a burdensome or a heavy weight or a lot to live up to? Um, Yes, I don't think it's any coincidence that we work with lots and lots of dynastic businesses. Probably more than half of our clients are family-owned, controlled, or heavily influenced uh, businesses. I think I think I have an innate understanding of what it's like to grow up with an identity that is only part-owned. I think most people have a sense that their identity is primarily theirs, and and if the easily the most interesting thing about you as a young person is your surname not your Christian name it's odd mm. you know because it it, 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 it it I mean it's both quite convenient because at least you have you know some standout quality but you're deeply aware that it's not yours mm. Mm. I think most people who who have that construct of relatives who are much more interesting than you are, um, you know, have a have a, a complicated relationship with it. And, and I mean, I suppose in my family, because there was a name but not money and not a family business to join, it, you know, the route out of, of the, the the identity challenge was to to try and transcend to try and be interesting mm. and so I think I think it was much worse for my father and my uncle yeah who at a time when you know there were very few famous people particularly when media was slow yeah it took an incredibly long time were the number of sort of globally famous people in their own lifetime was very very small mm. so at, at a point where you know Freud at the turn of the 20th century was globally famous along with you know, Einstein a bit later and Darwin and but but it was a handful. Yes. And so I think growing up as Freud's grandchildren uh, was a an almost you know impossible thing because it was so unusual. Yes. My dad had a very complicated relationship with it. We you know we weren't really allowed to talk about Freud. That actually endured for for m most of my life, I, 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 I sort of felt that there was something uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, I, I think Lucien and my dad becoming, you know, very well known was absolutely a reaction to the tedium of being constantly asked questions about something that really has nothing to do with you. And, and, and my dad was unbelievably famous yes. in the... Sort of 60s and 70s. He was a broadcaster. He was the first wave of, of television celebrities. Yes. You know, along with 
Michael Damon Andrews and David Frost. And, but but it, they must have Nicholas Parsons pretty well. He's obviously died this week as yes. well. I mean, they must have worked together a lot. Uh, the only major instruction my dad gave me for his funeral was that Nicholas Parsons would not be allowed to come. He would be banned. Why? They didn't uh, get on there. He hated... Um, I mean, they, they, I think they didn't particularly like each other, but I, I overruled it, actually. I let Nicholas come to the funeral. Yes. He was, a, he was a perfectly decent man. Everyone was trying to escape the... Right. You know, the, the baggage of the surname. Yeah. So, to me, family is, is much more about acquired family than necessarily inherited. Yes. The company's always felt like, not an institution, but definitely a a community of people who found each other yeah from the very early early stages it um it's been the, you know the, the heart and core of my life and my family and um my first wife worked at the company most of my good friends came through the profession either professional associations on the client side or, but it's it um it, it, it definitely has that feel we're walking through Regent's Park now. We're going to head to Newman Street, which is where... Was that the first God Freud's no. office? No. God, no. <laughs> the first office was, was in my front room. Okay. Uh, I had a, a flat in Gloucester Place, which is just sort of parallel with Baker Street. Yes. I think probably at about four or five people, we moved to an office in West Street. And then we moved from there to very nasty little office in just behind the Palladium when my office was actually a cupboard with no natural light <laughs> uh, and then Great Pulteney Street and then Great Pulteney Street we went to Chelsea for a little bit and then we moved back to the Mews actually just behind Newman Street mm-hmm. um, moved to Mortimer Street yeah. and back to Newman Street and then and to Stephen Street, where we'll, where we'll end up, yeah. where I've ended up. Um, you've always been a Londoner and always worked in London, although, of course, Freud now has offices yeah. in the States and uh, friends elsewhere as well. So what do you think about the place at this moment in time? I couldn't feel more like a Londoner. I'm pretty passionate about the city. Represented the city for most of the last... 20 years through Ken Livingston's eight years and then through the London 2012 Olympic Games and then for the last four years with Sadiq. Some of our proudest work actually. I think we, Ken had a, a absolute belief that London should be the dominant city in the world. Yeah. The most diverse city in the world, the most creative city in the world, the most you know, centre of business of arts, culture. I remember we actually hit it, I think about six years in, yeah. London officially became the number one city. I think it still is, isn't it, do you think? I think we might be either just lost or on the verge of losing the financial capital back to New York, but I'm not sure. Um, London's never felt Brexit, which I think is one of the reasons why so many people have struggled with this, you know, what feels like an imposed move away from Europe. I think Scotland and London sort of similar in going, well, we didn't vote for this. <laughs> you know, I've been through three, four recessions, I suppose. Yeah. So it's, it's um, I think it's, it's above, above all else, it's resilient. 
Uh, PR itself is is quite resilient, isn't it? I mean, it's said that in recession, PR practitioners do quite well off the back of it. Yeah, we always did. In times of transition and change and jeopardy, people need more guidance and more help. Yeah. I don't sort of fear e- e- economic cycles. And, and, I, and I, we've always been a bit immune to industry trends, you know, partly because we're small and independent and, you know, fairly fleet-footed. Yeah. So we've always been able to to, to find opportunity um, and, and, you know, reasonably well protected from sort of crosswinds of holding companies or of global economic trends or whatever. I mean, there was a time when the agency was owned by others, a couple of times. Owned is an interesting word. I mean, it, it never felt owned by anyone else. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, at times, yeah, Omnicom had the share certificate for a bit and publicists owned half of it for a, for a while, but nothing changed much. Mm. Um, and then at a point where it looks like it looked like they, things might change. We we just took it back <laughs> once easily and once less easily. But, but are you glad you've done that? Are you glad that it, it's back and it's independent and you can you can steer that ship? I mean, I'm I'm not sure. You know, as a as a as a 21 year old who was sort of dumb enough to you know set up a company with all of two years experience in a you know record company press office that I'm not sure I imagine that 35 years later I'd still be at it <laughs> um, what was it was there another plan did you have a, other ambitions to do something else people always remind me that I'd said there's nothing sadder than a 40 year old PR man <laughs> which I suspect I must have been 30 something when I said it so I'm assuming I I had plans to to, you know, I, I, I have, I've occasionally done other things. I've sort of drifted away from the business a couple of times, um, but it always, always drags me back. It's like the mafia. Are there any unfulfilled ambitions, anything, or any, any ambitions still, still ahead to achieve? I think the company's ambitious, and that's a reflection on me, I suppose. It's ambition as a driver. Yeah. It's not ambition that's pulling us towards something. Uh-huh. It's ambition that's pushing. Yes. You know, from behind. To, so it's to, not focusing on a specific achievement. It's. I, I, I don't look back much. I don't regard anything we've done before as particularly important. Um, I always remember having a meeting with a old PR man who was sort of regaling us with tales of when he did the don't tell Sid British gas oh, privatisation yeah. which had, then was sort of 10 or 15 years before and I thought oh, I hope I never sit and talk about Planet Hollywood <laughs> I won't ask about that <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it's I, 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 you know every year on New Year's Eve or around then I sort of I do a, I do a quick you know, quick audit yeah and you know usually We've we've made some ground. Yes. You know, it'll, either we've created a new division or a new business or found a new geography or you know created some you know some some strand that we haven't 
looked at before or you know virtually every year of of our 35 years there's been there's been something new um, I think we've got 35 years of unbroken growth uh, that's pretty incredible really isn't it um, I mean yes other than you know you turn up every day and you try and you know do stuff you haven't done before and yeah. and and try and you know push the thing along and try and find interesting people to work with and meaningful clients and projects that you can be you know I mean, I'm always, I'm always conscious that I'm I'm asking people to work on clients that effectively I choose and so you know I, 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 I try not to ever take on a client that isn't someone who you'd be proud to work with someone who's got a product that's interesting and saleable and I look at, at companies and you know, with no disrespect, but you look at a, a client list of, you know, very, very dull companies and products and, and services, and, you, and I, I, well, I wouldn't know how to do anything with that. Because it doesn't excite you. Well, it, it, I mean, it, it, it definitely doesn't excite me, but I don't think it excites anyone. Mm. So, you know, our discipline is about creating content that earns its way. You know, with advertising, you can buy your way into people's sightline but PR has to earn it so you know there's a there's a there's a filter that used to be called journalists and now is more complicated with social and viral but, but it's the same thing which is that if it's not interesting you know a journalist is going to say what you know if you post something that isn't interesting no one's going to like it no one's going to share it no one's going to spread it so you can make something more interesting than it might naturally be with creative marketing but we've just always gravitated towards clients that we thought we could do something for and that meant working with the best companies or companies that had values and an outlook that was transformative or innovative so I mean, that's really the only smart thing we've done for 35 years is pick amazing clients to work with and some and good horses yeah yeah we work on so many you know different areas from you know, FMCG to entertainment, to sport, to countries, to causes, to charities, to PHE, the, the, the work we do for the government through Public Health England is, you know, that I'm enormously proud of. That's 13 or 14 years of work around early cancer detection and child obesity and dementia and now mental health with uh, Every Mind Matters. Yes. Are there any specific moments over the last 35 years where you've thought that's been the biggest mistake I've made or the biggest lesson I've learned? For me, leadership, as I understand it, is just about making decisions. Yeah. Um, and if you make lots of decisions, you get, you know, you get lots of them wrong. But the beauty of, of a business that travels as fast as ours, you know, we, you know every day, we're having to work out what the opportunities are, what the threats are, how to respond, how to react. So, so we, you know, we don't have a five-year business plan that we, you know, it's it's every day we do for ourselves what we do for our clients, which is to work out what the opportunities are, and what the threats are, and how to respond and how to react. So, so, you know, a, a, a bad decision 
if you stick with it, I think can have terrible consequences. But if you're fleet-footed enough and, you know, not too proud to be able to admit that that was a wrong turn or an error or, you know, it's, it's the, 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 you know, when things get bad is when someone makes a poor decision and then on the back of it is presented with another decision which is where both choices are equally bad yes. because of the first bad decision and then you make one and then someone else says well you've done that now do you want to go this way or that way and, and you, you know you end up a long way from you know the turn off on the motorway that you should have taken um, <laughs> because you're too proud to say you were wrong because it's it's hard to, you know it's hard to go back and 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 undo something because it's messy you know well, as a Remainer, I think we should have recognised that the referendum was a mistake. Certainly in the form that it was, it was taken. You know, I think the Labour Party should have recognised that Ed Miliband was a mistake. I'm always baffled by the, how obvious it is to go and just go back to the point where you fucked up and and rectify it. And rectify it. Get but, David in instead. But 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 you don't. You go. Oh no, no, that ship sailed. And you go. Well, it, it might be embarrassing. It might be a bit of egg, egg face, and it might. You know, you might upset a few people. But if you recognise the mistake and don't rectify it, then I've never understood that logic. We were almost at Newman Street actually, which is the the, the previous office. Did, did, moving to Newman Street, did that feel like uh, a breakthrough? Did that feel like you sort of arrived as an agency or? got to the size that you wanted uh, what, what, what are the memories of that probably the one before Mortimer Street which will will pass on the way was the you know that was a building with a flagpole on top <laughs> um, did you have a flag we did have a flag and then I read a an article about um, Hanson which was a used to be a big British industrial company run by Lord Hanson and Lord White. And I think Lord White said that when they were looking at companies to take over, if they had a flagpole with a flag on it, they knew that it was easy pickings because they were obviously completely ego fueled and <laughs> so we took the flag down quite quickly. Okay, yeah. It feels like if there is any theme linking these places in your life, whether it be your home, where you've just come from, or the offices we talked about, is the artworks. You, you, you love your art, and you've got loads of great examples. Where, where did that start? Um, did you get given a Lucian Freud earlier on? No, earlier? didn't get given shit. <laughs> um, I, I bought all my Lucians. Uh, Any discounts? I, no. Oh God. No, I once I once tried to buy one direct from him through Bella, I think, because he, he and my father had a massive fallout in the sixties and didn't didn't ever speak again. So I I, I met him sort of much later in life when we became all, you know almost friends. But. I remember at one point, I, I think the first time I sold the company, I thought, oh, I'd really like to get a lithium. So I asked Bella and she came back and said, oh, he said yes. And here's a, you know, here's a couple of drawings. And there was, there were the very, very simple little pen and ink line drawings, I think of my grandmother. And he wanted 
I think, £30,000 for them. Wow. Which was about three times what any Freud's drawing <laughs> had ever been sold so, for at that time. So I thought, oh, OK, so the, the feud's still going. <laughs> I don't sleep much, so I, I end up looking at auction catalogues and eBay. Yeah, and that's dangerous. Yeah, you can wake up and think, oh, God, did I? Um, but it, it's, it's uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, love, I love the collection. That's the Morton Street building. So they're all very close together, the places? Uh, literally two blocks. Yeah. Why this area in particular? We're in Cheap. We call it Fitzrovia? I mean, no, I they, call, they used to call it NoHo. Yeah, no, which is a, an Americanization north of Oxford Street kind of thing. Um, uh, it was cheap. Um, you know, Soho, which was supposed to be cheap, but by the 80s had, you know, taken over by TV production companies and ad agents and stuff. So, so it, was, it was where we could afford. This little muse house up here on the left was, was the, I guess, the first office of the kind of modern era. Yeah. I, I can't remember exactly when, probably the 90s uh, and actually I do know it was because we launched Planet Hollywood which I said I wouldn't talk about um, <laughs> that's twice now from here in 92 I think so we must have we must have moved in in maybe in 91 as a PR agency at the time and look I come to this from a journalistic perspective and PR as a term public relations has been maligned by others down the down the decades what and journalists haven't and no, I'm not sticking up for either. I think reputation's incredibly important, incredibly valuable, and, and you know I think there's an enormous responsibility if 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 someone's trusting you know multi-billion-dollar brands and businesses to to you to for, uh, to protect. Um, and and I think PR has exactly the reputation it it deserves. I think in the end everyone gets the reputation they deserve. Actually, yeah. Quite often, not for what they deserve it for. <laughs> but, um, uh, despite what we do, despite what we try and do, uh, I, I, I think in the end, you know, the truth. I think as, as human beings, we have a, a bizarre and slightly inexplicable radar for hearing truth. I don't think you can sell a lie. Briefly, maybe, but you know, there they used to be that idea that you can fool all the people. Who were, you know, I, I actually don't think you can fool, you know, any of the people any of the time, really. Somehow, people have a, a, a sense of being able to divine truth. It comes out in the end, is what you're saying. In some form, uh, as I say, very often people who tried to pull one over on the public, get done for something completely different that they maybe even didn't do, but probably had it coming. So have we gone past the Newman Street office? Oh, this is it? Yeah. Oh, we're right outside it. And also looks like it's under new ownership or empty or... Yeah, we sold it. Um, I think it was going to become a hotel, but that was sort of four years ago. It clearly hasn't. It looks empty. It looks very much like it did when we left. When you look at it, do you remember what, what went on in there? Is it, is it, is it like you're, you're back there now and you can think about the decisions that were I made? Remember, I remember Philip 
Gould mostly there. It was the it was the, the era where Philip was deputy chairman and, and was running the research business and he definitely is responsible for as much of the sort of modern ethos of Freud as, as anyone. You know, he was he was talking to us about quite explicitly about purpose and 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 integrity and values from you know from almost the moment he he joined. Uh, we had a lovely setup in the basement with a focus group room with one of those two-way mirrors so people could look and hear members of the public slag off their product. Uh, but and I, I remember being on the roof of the building when Philip had gone off to have a medical appointment and been told he had esophageal cancer and, uh, you know, and, and my dominant memory of, of Newman Street is wrapped up in both the excitement of, of reinventing the business with Philip and then the very hard you know, battle that he fought against, against cancer. Yes. And was he a mentor of sorts? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd say that there were two. I mean, the first was a guy called Isaac Tigret, who was a very early client, who's the, who's the founder of the Hard Rock Cafe. Um, and he remains a, 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 a good friend, but he, he was he was definitely the person who who I most admired and looked up to in terms of the way that he ran his business and the values and the care that he took and the community that he created and how he looked after people and how he you know was prepared to you know take decisions that maybe made no commercial or economic sense because they were the right things to do. And then, you know, probably 20 years later, um, uh, Philip. We're now walking between Newman Street and to Stephen Street, the current centre of the empire uh, where we both work. So we should sort of look at the here and now and, and the future a bit. You, you touched there upon Philip Gould bringing a sense of purpose to clients, not the idea that you can just communicate something that doesn't exist, but getting the business to change to then tell the positive story. That, that's become more of a thing in, in the past few years, giving businesses, brands a sense of genuine purpose. Yeah, I, I think it was, a, it was a progression. I mean, we, you know, we started off as a celebrity entertainment business, and then we started working with brands that wanted to be famous. And then we started working with famous people who wanted to be brands. And then we started doing a lot of partnerships between brands and celebrities. And there was something slightly grubby about most of them because the, you know, the only rationale for why that celebrity had chosen to work with that brand was a check. Yes. And so, in the 90s, we, we started creating a more virtuous association with a charity or a cause or a, uh, an issue at the heart of, you know, a celebrity, a brand coming together to say we both care about poverty or we both care about health or education. Or, and so there was a, you know, quite often still a check involved, but there was also a check to something that they both believed in and there was therefore credibility to the association and 
you know, red was obviously a, a rather beautifully honed project red, yeah, yeah, version of that where you know, and comic relief where celebrities would support a charity and a charity could work with brands and it was a, a, a virtuous and credible um, position but it was it was probably our hobby for 30 years in the last five I would say that what a brand's values are and what it believes in are absolutely fundamental to its continued existence yeah. um, did that come about because not only did they have to start caring but you as you got older started caring more about these things as well uh, no I think I mean I think you know we're, we're, we're a sort of stopped clock that just happens to tell exactly the right time every I mean you know if your brother-in-law's Richard Curtis you you wake up every morning feeling woefully inadequate that you haven't done enough <laughs> <laughs> on any front but um, no we've we, you know I, look, I come from a a North London liberal family that that regarded you know social impact as as you know hi Donna just hey Maria hello Donna um, that's Donna saying hello as we arrive in Stephen Street <laughs> Donna part of the family now for a long time yeah for a very long time whenever anyone comes into the the office for the first time this is the thing they see this wall of of your artwork we're standing in front of a Damien Hurst. There's a picture of your great-grandfather, Sigmund, right there. By Andy Warhol. That's by Andy Warhol. Yeah. Uh, that's the scooter from Quadrophenia. Yeah. Is that the one he rides off a cliff? Yeah. yeah. They I'm glad they didn't ride it off a cliff. There were three of them. What's your favourite piece here? Probably the Sergeant Pepper drum. Although my house burnt down once and, and I, at three o'clock in the morning I had to find them and say get out get out and then and that there's that thing where you go well, what am i gonna save and and i should have taken the drum but i actually took the the shakespeare first folio easier um, to carry it was easier to carry but actually there are there are about 80 of those and there's only one of that yeah. i'll show you the new piece actually got to work out where to put this is this a late night ebay no purchase this was not oh banksy this is the test of the Banksy shred so before the work went into Sotheby's okay. which was then going to shred when they hit the remote control button they did a test one but it jammed about an inch and a half down so it's just got a little fringe at the bottom did you get it from the man himself? I'm not at liberty to say. Oh, who is he? <laughs> I know you're not going to answer that. Matthew, we're also standing in front of a part of Concord, which you famously painted blue or had painted, not literally yourself, but you had painted blue. I like to take credit for everything yeah, that we do, yes. I, paint, I painted Concord blue, <laughs> uh, which, which, was, which was, it, it turned out was an incredibly stupid thing to do because it couldn't go supersonic because it needed to be white because of the heat it generated. So we, we for 10 days, we flew our blue Concorde very slowly around Europe. And this was to promote Pepsi, of course, back in the, what, late 80s, was it? Mm, no, 90s, I think. Okay. Let's finish by looking at the sort of here and now. We touched on purpose just now, but what, what things, what themes do you think in communications are going to become more important in the coming months and years for, for brands and businesses? I think it's about accountability. It isn't about what you say, it's about what you do. And my favourite Nietzsche quote is, is, I'm not angry that you lied, I'm angry that I can't believe what you're going to say next. Which sort of means that once something goes wrong, 
anything you then do is treated with the utmost suspicion but anything you've done before counts. So, you know, I think it's beholden on any responsible company to make sure not only that they do the right thing, but they're able to demonstrate to their customers and stakeholders um, there's some integrity and, and, and a, a genuine belief in the values that they espouse. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Matt. <laughs>